Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers, and welcome to another episode of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Christian Swain here, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, in Deeper Digs, we dig a little deeper, go a little further with our exploration of diverse topics that all tie in with rock and roll. It's a companion show to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, or as we like to call it here, the RNRAP. The RNRAP is our overview, our rock history project. Deeper Digs is where we stop and take a closer look at single topics, people, places, things, you know, that all tie into the larger narrative. All of our podcasts, and we've got a nice little family of them now, can be found on our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, and our personal favorite, the donate link. Bookmark it, and please stop by from time to time. Thank you. Living on a Prayer, Rocky Mountain Way, Do You Feel Like We Do? The Talk Box makes a colorful and memorable cameo appearance on a handful of iconic rock tunes. It's an interesting gadget, and the man who invented it, Bob Heil, is today's guest. We led with the Talk Box because <laughs> we can't resist a gimmick, but Bob Heil's impact on rock history goes way beyond gimmickry. Bob was instrumental in the development of large, high-powered sound reinforcement systems in the late 60s and early 70s. Before modern sound reinforcement, live concerts at large venues were frustrating for the performers and disappointing for the fans. The Beatles quit touring in 1966 for exactly this reason. In a very real sense, the modern rock concert experience was made possible by Bob Heil's contributions. There wasn't any single big technological breakthrough. Really, it was a bunch of different things. The trick was integrating lots of different components into a powerful audio system that was also portable and practical. It could be broken down after the show, packed into trucks, and sent on to the next town. Bob Heil came at these technical issues with a keen musical ear. He is an accomplished musician in his own right and a tinker's experimental sensibility. Uh, why not try this? How about we combine these things? We start with Bob's early days as a nerdy kid obsessed with playing the organ in amateur radio. From there, we will learn how he had one fortuitous meeting after another. 
That led him to starting his own sound company, Heil Sound, in 1966. Heil Sound built and operated sound rigs for the Grateful Dead, The Who, and many other legendary acts. To this day, Heil Sound is a leader in the pro audio industry. It's a wide-ranging, detailed interview, so let's jump right in. Hello, Bob Heil. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. Well, hello to you, and thanks for having me on, and uh, happy to be here on a sunny Wednesday. Well, yeah, so let's uh, see. You you have a 50-year history in rock and roll, and I, and I want to get to some of that today. Uh, we'll discuss your helping shape live sound, you know, pro sound or sound reinforcement, as different people call it, for rock bands in the 1960s and 1970s. You're helping ham radio quality transmitting you invented the talk box, you helped uh, birth quadraphonic sound, helped birth home theaters, and of course your pro microphones uh, for music and broadcasting. But first, seems you're a product of, of Southern Illinois, just outside of St. Louis, and you pretty much lived there your whole life, if I'm not mistaken. So my question is, what's it like growing up in post-war middle America, and what kind of kid were you? Well, I, I guess you could call me a, a nerd or a geek, although those words weren't uh, around <laughs> right, in right, those right. days. But mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I was always messing around with electronics and putting things together and so on. Uh, but w- one of the very important things that happened was I had this incredible parents. They were just something. They, nice. uh, I had played, started playing the accordion when I was 10. Of course, of course you did. In mi- in middle America, everybody, I think, was issued an accordion. <laughs> and uh, when I was 12, my mother decided they were going to buy me a Hammond organ. And wow. they did. Wow. They were not wealthy people. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. there was uh, this thing, I don't know, it just God sent that she bought this. Uh, it, it was a B2. We didn't have threes yet. Right. Now, and did, you, I did just, you ask for it, or was it was it like you know was it was it something in a catalog? You were like, oh, I got to have one of these, mom. Or did she just get it for you? Well, out of the blue. There's a little history in the fifties. Actually, it was around fifty one or two. Hammond Organ invented a thing called the uh, what do you call it? The chord organ. They took an accordion and put the buttons over on the left side ah, and put the keyboard on the right. In other okay. words, it, it was electronic, all uh-huh. tubes. Uh-huh. And it was $995. And that was in in St. Louis. Wow. They had a ham and, dealer. And my mother went that, there. That's, a, that's a hefty price in, uh, in the 1950s. Tell me about it. Yeah. So she goes there by herself one day, stops into the Hammond dealer, and there was this wonderful, wonderful, blessed salesman that told her she shouldn't do that. She explained what I was doing and playing and so on. You need this. And by golly, that guy sold her a B2. Right. Okay. Now, we're okay. talking $2,500 in Oof. 1952. 
Wow. And upgrade. my parents were not wealthy, but right. she bought it. She came home. My dad said, well, did, did you buy the organ? Yes, I did. Well, uh, $995. Well, no. <laughs> the salesman <laughs> thought best that um, Bobby should go a step further because of the stuff that he was playing on the accordion. And I bought the big one at $2,500. And that's the only time I ever heard my parents even get close to an argument. They were oh. just so cool. And he said, my goodness, how are we going to pay for this thing? Well, they uh, had a, a shoe store in uh, Marissa, Illinois, uh, men's clothing and shoes. And um, they did. They, they, they worked hard. And... My dad had some outside deals, and that's another long story that I helped him with of taking coal-fired stokers out of the basements in St. Louis homes because natural gas was coming in. Uh. And he would take all these old things home that the guys would throw away and sell them to the people in southern Illinois that had been using wood fire and coal blocks, and they now had gas, a stoker. Right. Automated it, so that's how we paid for it. Or it it, it was just a blessing. And uh, I, yeah, it, sounds, I just, it sounds like you were pretty appreciative of the whole thing too. Oh my gosh, I was. <laughs> I pl I don't know how they put up with it, but I would play. I'd come home from from school and I'd be playing three and four hours a night. I just couldn't get off the Hammond organ, and I had started listening to George Wright and all of these great, great organists, Jesse Crawford. Now, these are theater organists. Right. I was not listening to any uh, rockabilly or any kind of contemporary music. It was all theater organ. It's all I listened to. Mm -hmm. I did that for a couple of years. I was 14 years old, and a lady that owned a restaurant about 15 miles up the road in Freeburg, Illinois, hired me. And I would, she had bought a Hammond spinet organ, an M2, put it in their restaurant, and I started playing on the weekends. And that was incredible. I, had, I played there a couple of years, and a guy came in one night. And oh, so this is how you met Stan Kahn. Well, kind of. For First of all, this man... I don't even know who this angel was. He enjoyed his dinner, he enjoyed the music, and he gave me his card. And I don't remember what his name was, but he said, he wrote on the back of it a number. He said, you might want to call this guy. He might be able to help you further your studies in, in the organ. And I took it to my mother, and we didn't know who it was, but she called it. It was Stan Can, who was kind of a real celebrity in the theater organ world nationally and was the organist, the regular organist, daily at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. Right. Called, he said, I don't know why you're, he was a wiry little guy, just funny, funny, kind of like a Buddy Hackett, and a little bitty tiny guy, you know, uh -huh. crazy, and he, why are you calling me? I don't teach, why would you, <laughs> we don't know who this guy is, so we don't know. He said, well, I'll bring a kid up here, listen to him. Well, he was playing on a daily, five days a week, TV show on NBC, the local KSD television. It was kind of a, a little lady, I think it was called To the Ladies. Charlotte Peters was the lady. She sang and he played the Hammond organ for her. Well, the really incredible part of this was he's right there on the on the set and this was amazing from this little kid from marissa to be standing on charlotte peter's set at channel five just barely 15 years old and we started 
every week we'd go in there and and I could play, but he was styling me. The registrations, the music, and left hand. Left hand's very important in the theater organ. But we did that for almost a year and didn't charge us any money. We couldn't figure out what was going on until uh-huh. he said, Miss Heil, do you know where the Fox Theater is? Well, yes, he said, I do. Well, we'll meet you there next week at 2 o'clock after the show. So we go in and met him at the back door. I got to tell you, that was an amazing day for this little kid from Marissa to walk in that incredible 6,000-seat, just gorgeous theater. I've never even seen anything like that. And he brought up that four-manual Wurlitzer out of the basement. It was on a lift, all this gold, lamey stuff. Oh, my gosh. He played a couple minutes. Okay, cool. He said, well, we'll meet you back here next week, and we'll we'll start working on this. And we'll, we'll get you to play in this. And as we went out the back door, and I'll never forget it, I said, Stan, how long do you think it'll be before I'll be able to play that? Oh, he said, don't worry about it, kid. You could do it now. No, I said, whoa, I never oh. been on anything like that. That was a Wednesday. I get home from school the next day on Thursday, and it just – there's all of these things, Christian, that God or some power had to be because the timing of my whole life is like this. Uh-huh. The phone was ringing, and I answered it, and it's him. And he says, I got to talk to your mom like right now. I said, well, she's at their store. Uh, she's not here. I need to talk to her. I said, are you okay? Yes, but she's got to have you up here at 7 o'clock tonight. That was 3.30, and it's an hour to get there. <laughs> I said, what's up? He said, Charlotte's got some stupid things she's doing, and I have to go play for her. So I want you to play the Fox tonight. I said, oh, I've never <laughs> sat on the bench. He said, don't worry about it. He said, I'll get it all set up. And he said, People, uh, they, when the theater organ comes up, they go out and buy popcorn. So don't worry about it. So that's what we did. Wow. And I'll never forget wow. it. I sat on this bench and took a big breath. And, and, and then the stagehand, George Bales, who played a huge part in my life later on, George hit the button to bring it up out of the basement. You know, it's on the lift. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget it. I don't know why, where it came from. I played Red Sails in the Sunset. <laughs> And a couple of other songs, and I went back down, and that was it. Well, the long story of it, a Reader's Digest of that is, Stan needed a substitute. And he also, this is the best part, needed somebody to help him voice and tune that monster. Oh, yeah. It hadn't been played in 20 years, so a lot of it didn't work. How many pipes are we talking about with this thing? Oh, probably that one. I think there was like 5,000. Oh, God. From one inch to 32 foot. And it was another godsend part of my life because we'd go in there. I started doing a few shows. By the way, I must say, one of the reasons that he wanted this young kid is you can't just jump on that Wurlitzer because even if you played well, you had to be trained because what you heard coming out of the pipes on the fifth floor, way up above oh, you, in this later. beautiful yeah, that's a thing, time delay. Mm-hmm. It was two seconds later. Two seconds. Mm-hmm. Wow! It's coming off the back wall, and it's like it was a mess. 
And Stan warned me. He said, well, you just play. He said, don't listen to what you're playing. You just play. <laughs> play by feel, not by, not, right. by, not by hearing. Oh, right, right. Exactly. So that one and two second delay thing, depending on which pipes, because this, yeah. the chambers yeah. were in different parts. But yeah. that was the story. And yet when I got just a few months later, I got my driver's license and I was off and running. And I would go up there. And again, my wonderful parents would allow me to do this. I would go there at 11 o'clock at night, and we'd work all through the night uh, while the theater was closed, and sometimes in the afternoon. But we had to voice and tune this. And he was doing all the work, voicing, but he needs somebody downstairs on the keyboard to, to play the yeah. pipes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tuning is nothing. You know, practically anybody can tune the octaves. That's easy. You know, get the beat just right. Bingo, you're in tune. Yeah. The situation was voicing. You had a, a rank of like uh, 71 or so, 91 brass trumpets. They really were the bells of a brass trumpet from about one inch to that one, I think, went up to 16 foot. And they were brass from little to big. Yeah. Quite yeah. a beautiful scene, by the way. And then they sat on top of these little reeds driven by air. You had to tune them. So you'd go, let's take that just one trumpet. As you'd go up and down, A, B, C, D, da, 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 da. Each note had to sound just like the second one, the one beside it. I'm not talking about in tune. We already tuned them. We're talking about harmonically. Right. So that one might have been a little muffled. Oh, next one might have sounded a little brassier. Other one would have sounded reedier. They all had to be voiced properly, harmonically. Right. They were uh, right. Wow. That's when little Bobby Heil <laughs> took his big lesson in listening, mentally dissecting what we would hear as we voiced these pipes. Never did I understand what a huge part of my careers, that's with an S, it would play later on. Listening and, uh, as opposed to just hearing. Listening is, is something. And a lot of people don't know how to listen. They just hear, which mm -hmm. is that's mm -hmm. a physical process. I'm, I'm hearing you, but I'm really not listening. You know, that kind of thing. You need right. to really mentally dissect what's in that coming from the speaker or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big part of my life. And I, I built a, several pipe organs, had one in my home. Actually, uh, there was a kind of a hodgepodge. The console came from a, the People's Theater in Dayton, Ohio, and pipes from all over. But anyway, I had that at my home. I also had another one I built for a restaurant. And I played in this restaurant in St. Louis. I had a pipe organ in this restaurant. It was a big deal. Yeah, People that was a, a Holiday Inn uh, in St. Louis, right? It was the largest Holiday Inn in the chain. 600 rooms in St. Louis, Missouri, and it had a four-star restaurant in it. Schneiderhorst, a German restaurant. Uh -huh. So the deal there, which was just unbelievable, they allowed me to do whatever. I'd play six nights a week, and about every month I'd have a different organ. I, I built a. I started off with my Hammond B3, two Leslies, da -de da That lasted about two months. Then I started in adding things to it, doing all kinds of things. Then it, I took two of them and built a three-manual B3 that was really something. Then I added five ranks of pipes 
that I built at the Wick's pipe organ plant. Martin Wick was a very dear mentor of mine, and it, it was amazing. We had busloads of organ clubs come from all over the Midwest to come and stay all night at the Holiday Inn and hear the music and enjoy the theater organ at a restaurant. And I still, at that time, would help Stanley with some of his work, too. So... Mm-hmm. All of this worked until about 1966. I just got tired of playing. I'd been playing for many years, 11, almost 12 years, six nights a week. And uh, I thought, what am I going to do? And so I came back to my little hometown of Marissa, 2,500 people, coal mine city, was Peabody Coals, one of their largest mines was there. And um, I opened a, a store. Yeah, ye, ye old or, music shop, right, right, yeah, right, right. Called the old music shop. Now, before we, before we get there, before we get there, I want to talk about your other love that is just as important as the Woolitzer, especially as you go through your your various careers, as you said, and that is your interest in ham radio. Well, that started at the same time at the Fox. I was fifteen years old, and what was so good about it was we play the organ at night. Well, I'd get home at midnight, and I, I have so many people say, well, why didn't you just go to bed? I said, you come home at uh, 5.30 at night and go to bed? Well, no, I get to bed. Well, no, I can't either. So I would be up till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning just piddling around on the ham radio airwaves, but mostly building. In those days, 1955, 56, you had to build your equipment if you really wanted to do something and not spend hordes of money. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I had this great mentor. I met him a month after I was on the air. I heard him on one night. And he had a very strange sounding signal. And um, everything was on AM then, like your AM broadcast radio. Right. But there was this thing coming along called single sideband where it had more power, no carrier, better audio, all this kind of stuff. Well – I would talk to him every night because he was building this signal sideband transmitter on a very high frequency on six meters, 50 megacycles. And I'd meet him every night, seven o'clock. And I was his little guinea pig because I was 50 miles from St. Louis. That was quite a trick for for 50 megacycles. And we got to talk and things after a few weeks. I told him I'd come in to play the Fox. He said, well, you need to stop and see me one of these days. So he gave me his address and rolled up in front of his address, and it was KMOX CBS Radio. I'm going, what is this? (laughs) This is part of the magic of of, of ham radio. You talk to these people, but you have no idea who they are, what they look like, what they do. And so I walk in, I ask for Larry, and they said, are you uh, talking about Mr. Burroughs? I said, I didn't even know his last name. I knew him as K0DGE, Larry. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was the chief engineer of CBS radio. And so he took me under his wing, and uh, we were working on the back benches of KMOX. You could never do that today. The unions wouldn't let little 15-year-old kid play around with Saudi ring irons and all that. Right. And I said, would you build me one of these transmitters? He was one of the first 10 people on single sideband on six meters in the country. And I, no, he said, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I said, oh, please. He said, no, but I'm going to teach you how. And he did. Wow. And that really started it for me. 
and I did, and I became one of the, the lucky uh, beautiful first people, I guess, that, that brought single sideband to VHF, and oh, it went nuts. I could be here all day telling you some of the craziest things you would do, and my parents, again, were so loving. I'm 19 years old. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, they allowed me to put up a 110-foot Roan Tower at the house. Right, that's, right. That's right. something. I've seen know. the picture. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, a couple of years later, uh, I did an experiment for a, a British antenna firm. It was 128 elements on two meters. This thing was 50 feet wide, 50 feet high, and it was 50 feet all in the air. Had to be yeah. together with a crane. And that is another fabulous story. I even uh, – NASA – uh, used it for an experiment because they they didn't have computers working in 1961 and two. And another little kicker to that, this Holiday Inn was across the street from the airport at St. Louis, where McDonald was, uh -huh. is still only now it's Boeing. They were building the first space capsule there, oh. and the seven original astronauts would come and stay at the Holiday Inn and enjoy their meal while I played the theater organ. Oh, you're kidding me. I have a menu with all, all of them signing it and that kind of stuff. But I became friends with them. We, they'd come in and, how you doing? They, they were fascinated by this pipe organ in a restaurant because those things were mechanical nightmares. And, yeah, we're, uh, we're talking Alan Shepard, Gordon Cooper, yeah, uh, Dick yeah, Slayton, John Glenn. Uh, John Glenn, right. Yeah. yeah, but what was really cool about it after they'd fin finished their dinner, Alan Shepard would come sit on the bench with me because his father had a pipe organ in their house. And he said he'd wake me up every morning playing that darn pipe <laughs> organ. So I know a lot about these things. Well, then right. we got to talking about my ham radio and all that because these guys almost all – Oh, know, yeah. A lot of people don't know this. But most uh, – all today of the astronauts – are amateur radio operators. They have an FCC license mm. because it's the backup communications when all else fails, they can talk to Earth on their little handy talkie. Right. So anyway, I, I showed him the picture of this monstrous 128-element antenna. I mean, this thing was crazy. And he said, can we use that? And I said, well, sure. Well, you have to move it to Houston? Oh, no, no, no. You have the phone patch, right? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, here's the deal. We know from some of our calculations what the delay time is from here up to the moon or up to one of the, uh, the satellites. We know what that delay time is on paper, but we don't know it really. If we had that antenna, it would further our time. He said, we, we're talking about building something, but it's going to take us another year. So what they did they sent me a tone over the phone line. I patched it into my transmitter into that antenna. I pointed it up to the moon, and they were listening down in Houston. And they calculated, however, and their calculations were correct, but they got to test those calculations. Right. So, right. you know, I don't – it just – We can go just on goes forever on. With, with this, Bob. I'm thoroughly uh, entertained and interested, but this is a rock and roll show, so we got to find our way into to rock and roll here. So let's get back to the ye old music shop because that, I believe, gets us to rock and roll. But I did want to ask that question. What kind of kid were you? And 
you know, I got my answer. You, you know, between the Woolitzer accordion and certainly ham radio, you have a musical background and you have an electronics background. And I think that's going to play into the rest of what we talk about yep. today. So well, I, the old music shop. I opened this store and I, I was so fortunate. I had known some of the guys at Hammond, Oregon, because I back in 1959, 1960, they would hire me to be a demonstrator at the NAM shows. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a cute little 19-year-old kid, and I could uh, play the, the organ pretty darn good. So they would hire me to just sit there during the show and play the B3 Hammond. Uh -huh. And for those so who don't know, that's the NAM show, which is the National Association of Musical Manufacturers. Exactly. It was held in Chicago in those days okay. at the um, McCormick Place. Well... I got a Hammond organ franchise out of the little store in Southern Illinois. I probably shouldn't have gotten it early. I was only 50 miles from their big wow. butt. You, you are talking, man, you are touched. You, you, you've got luck on your side. You could do no wrong. But I was selling them to home people. In those days, everybody had a Hammond organ. It was like a vase of flowers. <laughs> you know, they, they a piece of furniture. Much. It was a piece of furniture you it had to have to impress your friends. Right. Exactly. Like they buy grand pianos today so right. anyway i sold a lot of them i was teaching actually had one in the grade school and was giving organ lessons in the school that's kind of crazy but in that small town i mean i had no degree to teach but they thought that'd be cool so that's what i did okay but all of a sudden here comes these kids one day it was one day the kid came in and he plopped this box on the counter and he said there's a music shop right and i said yes he said uh well, I got my amplifier here and it doesn't work. Can, can you fix it? Uh, well, I probably could. What is this thing? What's well, a fender? I said, a fender. That's what's on my car. He like, no, no, no. It's my fender amplifier. Uh -huh. I've never seen a guitar, really. I saw it, but I never uh -huh. held it. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know what an amplifier. I knew there were things. Oh. And as However, we've established, you, you're not into contemporary music. Hey man, I was a I was a George Wright Jesse Crawford a theater organist, but anyway, I was intrigued. I turned it upside down. What did I find? A pair of six L sixes and a five U four. Wait a minute, that's the modulator on my Harvey Wells transmitter on six meters. Uh, I knew what had happened. He probably tried to make it go to twelve, and it only went to ten, and he blew it up. So I turned it upside down, took it all apart. He's standing there in about 20 minutes. I, I had all my hams don't throw anything away. I still had lots of parts back there. I go back and grab a pair of 6L6s and a 5U4, and then you know the screen resistor is going to go if you try to do that. I happen to have a couple of 47K resistors, put those babies in there, and then about 20 minutes, he's back and running. He's like, whoa. Awesome, he, right. Right. You didn't even have any of them schematic things. I said, no, I don't need any of them schematic things. Well, the word started getting out. And what happened? Michael McDonald, REO Speedwagon, weren't known by then yet. They're still in high school. Danny Fogelberg. I mean, the, the list is long. Yeah. A lot of the Midwest bands found out about this little freak in Marissa, Illinois. It's got a soldering iron. <laughs> Things. He can fix anything, man. Take it to take it to Bob. He's got it. Oh, yep. All right. I got well, it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Because of my working at the NAM shows with Hammond Organ on the other side of my life, I was able to garner all these franchises. 
and we're talking anything I wanted, all the good stuff, because I was in the country. The sales reps loved me because it was a new account, and I was selling the bejesus out of Gibsons and Stratocasters, Fenders, and uh, Amplified. I had I had stuff that no other store had. I, you come into UO Music, you'd see six left-hand Les Pauls in different colors, as well as about 10 others, and <laughs> Stratocasters right. in every color, left-hand, right-hand, because I, I didn't know how to play a guitar. But I knew that if I knew there were left hand, I'm afraid, well, these guys need, you can't. They got to have a guitar too. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and other music stores I'd visit that have, they wouldn't have one. They'd order it. I'm going, no, that isn't right. Oh, uh, I know. I'm, I am left-handed. I know exactly uh, well, what you mean. <laughs> well, see, I started working then to build this store into something crazy. It was really the first professional music shop probably in the country, other than a Manny's in New York. Right, right, right. But we right. did it differently. I would have a huge amount of stock. I became the largest Sun Amplifier dealer that they ever had because I fell in love with the fact that that was a Dynakit amplifier. Mm. EL34s, 5881s, I'm going, holy smokes, look at this thing, chrome-plated chassis. It was really done right and beautiful work in the cabinets. They were folded horns. I was just going crazy. And spoke to and your inner it, geek, right. One day, this is where the story again oh, takes now, a I, I want I want you to hold there for a minute. So I, I think I know where you're going. You're gonna you're gonna go to February second, nineteen seventy. But before No, no, we... no. Oh no, oh no. That that would be too fast. Oh, okay. One day I thought I was in St. Louis and I thought, hmm, I'm gonna go by the Fox and see old George Bales, remember? I told you he was a stage and a stage yep, manager yep, that would yep. push the button. And I roll up to the back door, and here's all these big boxes out there. I go, what is going on? I go, George, what are you doing? He says, we're putting in a new sound system. Oh, okay. What's all that? Well, those are all our big old speakers. I said, well, what are you doing with them? Well, they're out there for the junk guys. Said, Wait a minute. You're throwing those away? I said, a ham doesn't throw anything away. Can I have them? <laughs> well, sure. Well, they were A4 Altex, baby. Yeah. We're talking about the real deal bass bins uh, of the 1930s and 40s. So I went, rented a truck, took them back to Marissa, and I'm going, whoa. And then over the next year, I, I heard Macintosh was the best amp, bought a yep. bunch of Macintosh yep. amps. Mm -hmm. I had this little Alltech mixer that had little eight little knobs on it. That was it. No EQ, no nothing. But I couldn't make it work. And it was, to me... I'm building a big hi-fi system. I didn't know what I was doing with it. <laughs> right, right, right. It wasn't pro sound. Horns. It was just it was for yeah. a, a big a big stereo system, right? Yeah, I built an electronic crossover. Nobody even knew what that was in a day. Uh -huh. But I had a four-way system with with big subs, those big bass bands, and I had mid-range and tweet. I had uh, the a first real system. I had, system, right? I, I had thirty-two ring tweeters. JBL. I love JBL, and it was amazing. Well, I started renting Hammond organs to the Keel Auditorium in St. Louis. That's a 19,000-seat hall, concert yeah. hall. Mm -hmm. And they would have Sunday afternoon called the, the Cavalcade of Country Musicians. They'd bring a busload up 
from Nashville. In, in 1967 and 8, you couldn't see Dolly Parton or uh, Little Jimmy Dickens on the TV only. You had to go to Nashville. Right. Well, they would bring them into various cities once a month. And so I would rent them a Hammond organ this one time. And I'm like, my gosh, it sounds terrible. They had these two little columns about four feet high to fill 19,000. Well, that place was built in the 30s. I mean, they, they didn't have big sound. So I, I asked the promoter, I said, hey, I got a big sound system. It might work in here. He said, well, bring it up here next time. That was amazing because they all went freako. And uh, the sound was great. It, it just was so much fun because I was mixing. It's the first time I'd ever really mixed up any kind of band and it was uh -huh. you know, pretty simple music with the country guys this one guy comes to me one day and he says hey we got a big deal coming up here it's um, a little thing that I, I got this little band they started out in ohio and then they're going to do a little core a tour of a, a couple weeks would you want to take some of this you don't need all of it but you want to do it and i said never been on tour before and i have two guys thank gosh again blessed i was they were from uh, siu carbondale and they knew the music. I mean, they were really into rock and roll, and they were my roadies. Mm -hmm. And so I said, hey, John, you want to you wanna go to Ohio and do this? Okay, let's go. So we did. We'd take off and rented a 24-foot truck. Big deal, right? The three of us in the cab, like a, just a bouncing along. We get up there and set up, and in comes the band. I had no idea what it was, who it was. It was the James Gang. Right, right, right. Joe Walsh. And about two song, uh, two songs in. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, two shows. Wake up. About two shows in, Joe Walsh and I d discovered we were both ham radio operators. Of course. And it changed our whole trajectory. <laughs> right. Because, right. I mean, he's very technical, and because of being a ham and and. But he, he always wanted to do things, but he couldn't ever find anybody to do it. They thought he was nuts. Went, you know, well, you can't change that. This is the way it is. Don't change it, man. You know, it might not work. Well, right in the middle of a song, because I mixed on stage in those days, and he'd walk over to me playing the guitar during, during Walk Away or whatever. Hey, do this. Move this over here. Let's try this. <laughs> I mean, I'm experimenting I'm doing literally in the middle of the show, right? Yeah. I mean, what the heck? Yeah, that yeah, started yeah. it all. Right. We come right. back and I did a couple more shows. I did some big rock shows with Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and, and Ted Nugent and Bob Heil woke up like really fast, Christian. Oh, uh, what I mean, what you could do, right? Right. Yeah, you have to understand. I was totally into the theater organ, but I quit playing in 1966, the first of that year. By the end of 67, I knew what was going on. I knew I had a calling here that with my ham radio background and being able to listen, that was the whole thing. Uh -huh. I even helped them with their guitars and some of their amplifiers because it's all about harmonics. And I learned that from the theater organ. Mm -hmm. But it was just way, way out there uh, with all of this stuff for me. But... I loved it because it was technical for me. And then one night. Hold on. Now, hold on before no, we where get we're there. Going. Let's give the diggers a little basic on, on what a modern sound system is like today when they go to the theater, or the arena, or a stadium. 
and then we'll bring them back to say, you know, August 29th, 1966, the last Beatles concert. And part of the reason why they left the road was because the sound was so bad. So when somebody walks into a concert venue nowadays, you're, first of all, you're getting this high-end sound that's usually front of house uh, is going to be array speakers uh, with subwoofers. Is that right? Yep. And then in the middle, you're going to have a mixer who's probably in the middle of the stadium uh, who's actually mixing the front of house sound, correct? Right. Okay. And then if, you, if they're noticeable, they'll see, you know, these days either wedges in the front of the stage, which is actually providing sound to the musicians, correct? That's correct. Or if you really want to take it to another level, these guys are using in-ear monitors, which are, you know, formed, uh, let's say, earbuds that give each musician the exact mix that they want to hear. Um, but you can pretty much do the same sort of thing with the wedges, which most people are familiar with the wedges. Now, if they're really paying attention on the side of the stage is a guy who's actually controlling the mix for that, Correct. That's right. So that's that's the modern system that we have today. Does that sound about right? Mm-hmm. All right. So now take me back to, uh, say, August 29th, 1966, the last Beatles show. Well, that that show had uh, vocal masters. <laughs> they were little four-foot columns, and I don't know how many they had, but – Maybe maybe six to eight, I think, is, uh, I, if I remember right from the pictures. Yeah, they just had them around the stadium, and it it's like taking a, a glass of water, pouring it in the ocean, and trying to measure <laughs> on your finger how far it came up. Right. Now, this is it, in stadiums. I mean, this was this, yeah. this particular show was, you know, this, at the uh, San Francisco Giants Stadium um, yeah. here, 18, oh, not AT&T, what was called Candlestick Park at the time. You know, the, the more famous example is the Shea Stadiums show again, yeah. where – and then what they would do is they would hook it into the uh, the ballpark's uh, public address <laughs> system. Isn't that right? Yeah. And that well, would just make it even worse. The delay was ridiculous. Right. And then the musicians themselves could not hear anything at all. No. Yeah. So uh, and then add to, especially in the Beatles case, the screams of the crowd. And yep. now you have a disaster on your hands. It, so, it, it was a disaster. So this is what you inherited. This is what you needed to fix. Is that right? Well, I, did, I didn't know it, but it happened. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know I was going to be the anointed one, but I kind of was. Uh, Claire Brothers. You and the Claire Brothers are the only two right. major uh, touring sound reinforcement operations right. uh, in 67, I think. Is that right? I w- what was so cool about that is Gene and Roy Clare and Heil Sound started at the same time, 1966. How about that? Yeah, which is which again yeah. is is really interesting because you know, like I said, a big reason the Beatles came off the road was because they they just couldn't hear each other anymore. It was boring. They were getting poor as musicians, and this was an, an ongoing problem. And they never saw a future in that getting better. And it's funny no. that you guys both start in 1966. Yeah, yeah. But uh, 
that all went to fast forward pretty quick. It did. And I didn't know it, but right. I was so a part now. Of it. Now I you're building these systems. You're moving. You're moving around. You're going around uh, the country with uh, a lot of these bands that we've already mentioned. And then, yes, uh, I think uh, February second, nineteen seventy, you get a phone call. Well, I I had only been out uh, with Joe just for that thing in Ohio, and I came back. Uh, you know, that was only a couple weeks and. Wasn't that, fun? Wasn't that fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm back to selling Hammond organs, guitars, and playing with my big sound system. And um, I get this call from George Bales. Remember him? Yep. <laughs> Third <theater>. time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hi. Are you still have those big speakers I gave you a couple years ago? I said, yes, sir. I got them. They work? I said, yeah, I got them working. Well, here, talk to this guy. This band came in there tonight without their PA. And he handed the phone to Jerry Garcia. Right, right. And I'm going, what is this about? Hey, man, uh, we came in here tonight and um, got in here at 4 o'clock from New Orleans. And, and, and our sound mixer and truck and all the equipment is gone. They're not yeah, here. That's Bear Owsley, Bear Stanley Owsley. And this is just after the bust in New Orleans where Bear got copped for jumping bail. And I think they kept all the equipment along with him, right? Yeah, the story was the night before they had played uh, the warehouse, I think it was in New Orleans, and the DEA and the FBI had caught wind that Bear was going to be out of the state of California, and he was on probation not to get out of the state. Well, he did. They thought they, they, thought they were going to slick in this small little Midwest East Coast tour, so they take off. first job was New Orleans. Along the back row are all the suits – Nobody knew that. And the band played. Everybody's clapping, going home. See you later. Bear's loading things up. A couple hours later, he goes out and puts it all in the truck and padlocks the truck. And just as he padlocked the truck, they padlocked him. <laughs> they took him. They took the truck and all of the sound gear yeah. because Bear owned the sound gear. Well, famously presented in the this. song Truckin', as we all know. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't know this. The band, they came on to St. Louis several hours earlier. They had left to fly back, fly back to St. Louis. So when they get into the Fox Theater at 4 o'clock, there was no bear. There was no truck. There was no gear, no sound gear. So I told him what I had. I said, I got A4s, JBL 2482s, and uh, it's a four-way system with Macintosh amps. And he thought, I'll never forget. He said, you got Macintosh amps? And I said, yes. He said, Get that up here, like, quick. I said, well, uh, that was 4 o'clock, a little after. Yeah, I said, so, I'm so, so Jerry, Jerry knew the good stuff when he heard it. Oh, well, that's kind of what they had. Yeah. And uh, so I said, we, Yeah, Bear, Bear was no slouch himself when it came to oh, high-end no. audio equipment. Bear was way ahead of me, baby. He really was. He was uh, quite the guy, and uh, he had a great platform to play with it, <laughs> the Grateful Dead. But – I, I got up there about 8 o'clock, and my two roadies, those two guys, John, they were an hour south of Marissa at Carbondale. So we got all together. We pull in there and set this thing up and got going. I, it was 8 to 9 o'clock. Peter Kimball and John Lloyd, my two roadies. The blessing was, Christian, of that whole deal, they were Grateful Dead heads. They knew Peter and John. every right. song. They knew everything about the band. Well, you know, when you're mixing a band, 
knowing the music is about 90% of it, don't you think? Oh, yeah. 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 And they did. Yeah. Especially for so, house. Yeah. 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 And so we, uh, we had monitors. Well, they were freaked out because nobody was doing monitors. Bear was experimenting with them, but nobody else even knew what monitors were about. Well, let, let's, explain, let's explain to the people why that's a problem uh, and why monitors were a problem at that time. That's where I was going with this, where <laughs> monitors hadn't happened because all they do is they feed back right, to, right. The, to a normal guy. If you just you put a speaker out in front of a microphone, what do you got? Feedback. Yeah, yep. Why do you have monitors? Because the better the PA to fill the room out front, the worse you hear it on stage. Right. All you hear is what goes to the back wall and comes back seconds later, which does you no good. And then by then it's not usable. But you can't hear the PA. And you got to hear it. When you're performing, you need to hear. The bass, the bass player wants to hear the piano player. Or the guitar player wants to hear the snare drum. And this sounds silly, but it's true. Oh, Each yeah. guy, has, he needs another member of the band, or maybe some of them need all of them. Well, you need to be able to mix all of those. And we had that set up. We had a, a Langevin console. I had bought this Langevin. It was at the time, it was $10,000, a lot of money of a recording console. A little story about that later. But we had a, I mean, this was stuff nobody was doing. I didn't know it. <laughs> I really didn't. I was just a ham radio. Guy. Yeah, you were just, just like, more. this is great stuff. I need that. Right. Man, I can do this. And so we had built these monitors and they were feeding back like crazy because the guy said, we got to have some way to hear on stage. I said, oh, well, we can cure that. Really? How? Okay. Remember that big antenna I had? Remember that 150-foot tower I had with other antennas on it? Antennas are all based on phasing. Right. I was a crazy man for phasing because of <laughs> ham radio mm -hmm. the transmitters remember that first single sideband transmitter how did we get rid of the carrier because it has no carrier we had two systems out of phase carrier goes away how do we get rid of the other sideband you do that because one of them is out of phase i was phasing was my was second nature to me so we took these monitors and the amplifiers and the microphones, and they were out of phase from the main system. You couldn't make them feed feedback. You could hold the microphone in front. won't feed back. It's out of phase. And so that was really a big deal for us that my ham radio played such a part, and I didn't, I didn't know. But it's so interesting. Owsley was working on that system of his own. It was a little different situation where he used two microphones taped together. Yep. We did it within the console. But anyway, it was the same idea. They were out of phase. Mm -hmm. Well, the basis of that whole thing was uh, after the show, why their manager said, you, you got to go on tour with us. And I, uh, we've only <laughs> done just a little deal. And I turned around and said to John, John and Peter, I said, you guys want to go on it? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't have and to so ask we, twice. <laughs> yeah. And so we went out of there. And then the lovely part was Jerry Garcia and I became very good friends, really good friends, because I wasn't of their culture. 
but that didn't change anything and maybe made it better. I don't know, but he, mm-hmm. he loved the technical part and he would come to Marissa and we'd spend hours playing around with things and making things better, sometimes worse, but that made it well, better. experimentation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but through failure, about, we learn uh, things. Yeah. Yeah, about two shows on the tour. I didn't go on that tour, John, and I had to stay back and take Run care the of the store right. and projects. Right. And I get a call, and it was from, from Jerry, and he said, hey, Heil, it, it, it's, it, it's Garcia. I says, everything okay? Oh, yeah, this is great. He said, but we have a problem. All of your boxes and stuff, it says, ye old music <laughs> shop. What, right. what is this all about? I said, well, that's my little music shop that we have here, and that's how I build it. He said, we can't pronounce ye, ye old. He stumbled around. We can't pronounce all those words. I'm just going to call you Ohio Sound. Is that okay? So I guess it is that Jerry Garcia named our company Ohio Sound, and right. that's a very true story. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, so you've been working with the dead now, uh, and then you uh, obviously the James gang, uh, you know, and it's funny. I, again, you're, you, you are, you know, having this simpatico relationship with guys that are, you know, kind of geeks at heart themselves. Joe Walsh uh, being a ham radio operator, Jerry, everybody knows Jerry was always interested in uh, all kinds of uh, interesting gadgets and toys and things like that. So you get another call, and this takes it to a whole different level, and that's with The Who. Right before that, I got a call from a guy, and he said, Hi, is that you? And I said, yes, sir. Who's, who are you? It's Clips. Oh. Said, really? Uh, Paul Clips? Mr. Clips? Yeah, it's Clips. And I'm thinking to myself, this is God on the other end of this phone. Why is he calling me? <laughs> I mean, he called me. I, whoa. For anyone that don't know, Paul Clips was the father of the folded horn. Single-handedly was practically the father of the hi-fi stereo movement. Yeah. And he was just an amazing guy. I, there's, We could do a whole show on Paul Clips. He said, I, I want to come and see you. So he flew his airplane up to Marissa, landed at Sparta Airport down the road, and he spent all day with me. And I figured this guy is going to cut me off at the knees. I'm a ham. I'm not an engineer like him. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I just keep futzing around till it works. And he he's real tall and leaning over my shoulder. Well, why would you do this? Well, why would you do that? He'd never seen a 20,000-watt PA. And, and it just why why is this why is that didn't say anything just why 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 he he was fascinated filled he with never questions. even allowed rock and roll to be played in his presence because it would mess up his very very good hearing I heard I learned that later from his uh, uh, plant manager that night or that afternoon put me in his plane flew me back to his home in Hope Arkansas. And the next day, took me out to his personal lab and his plant where he was building the K-horn, the amazing K-horn, and all of the speakers, hi-fi speakers and stuff. He wasn't in the PA business, but oh man, there was this guy something. And it was, I say this a lot, I say this very lovingly, be careful what you hear here. Those two days, to me, was like a drunk meeting Jesus. (laughs) 
turned you All right. right. So I learned so much in those few days. No, I didn't learn it right then. But he pointed me to the Fletcher Munson curve, Dr. Fletcher, Dr. Munson, what they did for Bell Labs back in in the 20s and 30s, how our ears work. Do you know how your ears work? Do you know what we hear? Do you know why we have to do this? What about this? Is the are the phasing coherence right? All of this kind of stuff. And and he I was just writing all these notes down that later on I was able to go to the 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 Paul Clip school uh, by looking up things in the audio cyclopedia and go to the library. We didn't have Google. No. But no. it was a wonderful thing. And my 20,000 watt PA became about 8,000. It was better. It covered better. It had better response, much better dynamic range and transient responses, all because of what he taught me. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just throwing up a bunch of big boxes. And to be very honest with you, it's what everybody else was doing in building theater systems. We're talking about for movie houses and stuff. That's about all we had. Nobody was doing big PAs. Right. Then the big call came and, uh, this, this was amazing. I get this call one day. Now, we had already built the talk box for Joe. We were planning the equipment list for Barnstorm, which was his solo act. And he would come to Marissa and we'd start getting things put together. What kind of amplifier, guitar amps, what are we going to use? I got him a Mellotron. We were, uh, we were the first distributor in America for the Mellotron. And all this kind of stuff was going on. <laughs> How are we going to do this talk boxing? Well, we could do a whole show on the talk box because the talk box goes way back to 1939 by another ham radio musician, Alvino Ray. He built the first, whatever you want to call it, he was calling it the voice actuator, I think, in that time. Uh-huh. And that all went through Nashville where Pete Drake had taken a little three-inch speaker. That's actually what Walsh used. He used Pete Drake's studio when he did Rocky Mountain Way. But here we are, Walsh and his his roadie, uh, Crinkle. We were, how are we going to do this talk box thing live? We can't do it with a three-inch speaker. So we figured it out and built this 250-watt driver and built a dock box. Had a high-pass filters and all the stuff that I had to do to make it not blow up. Mm. And um, so a lot of – it really took off then. Chaka Khan had a very big hit using it. And she was – we were out on tour with her in Chicago at that particular time I got the call. And the guy said, um, you guys got that big PA, right? I read about it on the front page of Billboard magazine that you had it with the Grateful Dead. And I said, yes, sir, that's me. Well, we want that. I said, well, we can work out something. Yeah, but we need it tomorrow night in Boston. I said, no, we can't do that, sir, because I'm out on tour with Chaka Khan. <laughs> I don't care who you're on tour with. We have to have it in Boston tomorrow night. I said, well, let's look at it another way. We couldn't possibly drive from Chicago to Boston in, in a time day. for it. Right. Right. tomorrow. Well, we don't care. I said, oh, okay, well, you can call me back. Wait a minute. No, no, no. You don't understand. It has to be here tomorrow night. I said, uh, who are you? He said, well, I'm the who. I'm going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hello? Yeah. Who's said, on first, right? I'm Peter Rudge, the manager of the who. 
And we need that PA in Boston because we came over here with all this new music of an album called Who's Next? We brought over our little columns. We have four of them on each side of the stage, kind of like the Beatles used, Kristen. <laughs> and he said, my gosh, Ain't we happening. played for night and the media is just killing us. Oh, yeah. And it sounds terrible in these big halls over here. We need your system. Because I read in Billboard that it was great. We, we hit the front page of Billboard magazine after uh, the Grateful Dead shows. And yeah. That was very wonderful, and I was very honored by that. But here we go. What are we going to do? So I hired a Chicago company that I had worked with, a sound company. They took over Chaka's tour, and we rented a 707 airplane, a Tiger Freight airplane. Never before had I done that, and I hadn't. I probably will never do it in the future. But anyway, we could – by that time, I had figured it out. I was a straight man in a crazy world here. <laughs> You'd go into some of the early concerts, and one guy would bring a Volkswagen van of guitar amps, and another guy would come in a pickup truck with something else, and the yeah. light guy would get there yeah. and, and never get there at the right time or sometimes not at all. This is crazy. So I rented a 40-foot semi and started doing my tours – with a semi. Everybody was there. I, I would take the guitar amps. I would take the lighting. We could take everything there with one truck. We'd have one driver. We'd end up where we were supposed to be at the same time. Right. And uh, so we drove this 40-foot semi into the back of the airplane. Of course, Tiger Freight, that's what they did. Uh, hauled big freight things around and made it to Boston. And I had no idea who to who were. I had, well, I kind of heard about it, but just became infatuated with with the band. It was amazing. I was with them for, I don't know, it was seven years, something like that. We did all their stuff and worldwide. It was just a huge, exciting part of my life because we really had some technical whiz kid there with, with Peter. He was something. And at the same time, we were doing all the Who shows. We were doing Walsh and Jay Giles and ZZ Top. I have a picture of ZZ Top without beards. I mean, that's how early we went. <laughs> I started ZZ. working with them. Right. And, right, of course, right. we, did, we did this uh, the, the, this cute little kid they pulled out of hum, Humble Pie that was using my talk box, and that's Peter Frampton. That's a whole nother story about him and my talk box. But yeah. back to the who, we, we did all those things, and it, it was – to me, it was just amazing uh, how how incredible the sound could be, and yet I'd go to other concerts and it was awful. And there again, my hearing, my listening, being able to tune things, tune the room. We built the first analyzer so that the guys that really didn't have the training and hearing all that, we could analyze it. it. It was really something. And just, I was building and designing things that the groups really needed. I, and that's where it was for me, is to doing things that hadn't been done before so that music could be heard better by all of the patrons. 
Yeah, and it, and it really did. I mean, you were there from the very beginning. Uh, you went all through the 70s as these rock shows turn into these giant arena shows and then giant stadium shows, and they require, you know, a high level of quality sound. And the sound did get better and better and better throughout the 70s. And then I guess in uh, the early 80s, you just kind of walk away from it all, right? Yes. Uh, one thing we want to touch, uh, touch on is um, Humble Pie, mm-hmm. the manager who was the manager of Tony Bennett also, D. Anthony, called me one day and he said, Hey, Heil. He had a real rough voice. He said, I'm pulling Pretty Boy out. I said, do what? I'm pulling Pretty Boy out of Humble Pie because we had done almost all their shows our whole career. I said, I don't know. What are you talking about? He said, we're pulling out Frampton, damn it. The girls are going to love him, and we're going to make a star out of him. Now, make him sound really good, and so we did. But in that, I get a call one day from his girlfriend, Penny. He wrote a song, Penny, for your thoughts. Penny says, hey, Bob, I need a Christmas present for Peter. I said, okay, I'll send you something. He says, but, you know, it's got to be related. But don't send him a guitar. He's got lots of guitars. So I sent Penny McCall a talk box. Ah, okay. All right. And that's how we get Do You Feel Like We Do. Yes. And it goes back. And again, that, that's a whole historic point. He had been, he brought, he came over here. I think he was 16. Uh, George Harrison brought him over here to do his wonderful work on his solo albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they recorded it. In Pete Drake's studio, remember Pete Drake had that little three-inch talking thing? Yeah. That's where Peter got onto it. He was fascinated by it, but there wasn't any. Uh, Pete built that for himself. He wouldn't sell it. He wouldn't let you use it, only in his studio. And then when he got it as a Christmas present, whoa. And he'll tell you it was really the centerpiece of his solo career. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, that was a, a, you know, a unique technological piece of equipment uh, there in the mid-70s. I, I was always amazed, and even today, when I go out to see he or Joe live, all they have to do is to put that hose in their mouth. A lot of times they don't even have to do anything yet because everybody knows what's coming. Oh, yeah. But when they hit that first, Wah. The ceiling comes off of the arena. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, yeah. Love oh, yeah. We use one in my band. Uh, we do Sweet Emotion, and uh, we use it on that. And, of course, we do Rocky Mountain Way. And so you can't do those songs without the talk box. Mm-hmm. You just can't. So, yeah. so, so just because we're, we're, we're running out of time here, Bob. But, and I, I, we could talk all day for, forever, but i got to respect your time. In the early 80s, you do. You just kind of walk away from this whole this whole circus, don't you? Well, think about it. At the end of the 70s and, and right at 80, music business was a little dormant. Everybody yeah. was off the road. The big shows were not there. The Framptons, the Walshes, the Who, everybody was kind of dormant. What had taken its place? Yeah. Punk rock. Yeah, punk and new wave, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I did one tour with... Uh, <laughs> Wendy O. Williams. Oh, and okay. I, I wasn't on the tour, but we did it. And my guys would keep calling back, you got to come and see this, buddy. This is really great. No, no, no. Well, we ended it because, and I'm not saying, don't, I got to be careful here. 
just a couple of those acts that I had done and we were dealing to do, they were very arrogant, disrespectful, very smart alecky. They knew it all. None of my roadies, none of my guys knew anything about sound. They knew it all. You're going to have to get rid of all of this, and we want you to buy this, and you're going to hit this. And I'm going, wait a minute. Uh-uh. Uh, we've been pretty successful in this career. I didn't tell this to them, and I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to let some arrogant guy who, I don't know, what, he's not going to tell me how to run this with all this success we had because what he was talking about wouldn't work. Right. I knew that. Right. So I came back home after Wendy O. Williams and sold the PA system. Pete Townsend took half of it to England, and a company in Michigan bought the other half. And that was the end of it. And I put some of the things in storage. Um, ham, I don't throw anything away. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it was one of those things. And I went back to building stuff for my beloved ham radio. We, we, we had become and still are the major manufacturer of headsets, microphones, and all that for amateur radio and emergency communications have been, gosh, we started that in 70, um, oh, started about 78, 79. Mm -hmm. And um, I got back into all of that, doing even more stuff till about 2006 – I, uh, when an old friend been, shows up. Well, I had – Sarah, my wife and I, had, who owns High All Sound these days, we'd been uh, spending some time in California with Joe. He, uh, he was really uh, coming out of some times there and getting back to life. And so we'd go out and have fun with him and finally bought a home out there. We lived out there for about six or eight years, second home because plant's still going here in mm -hmm. Illinois. And um, one day he called me. We're sitting around and his kitchen table, and he had one of my ham radio mics, and he said, you have to take this gold line, and you got to put an XLR in the bottom of it because I want to use it. And for what? He said, well, it's better than my 58 thing. I said, no, because I had never done this. He said, oh, yeah, it is. So we started building things for Joe. I was not looking beyond Joe. And Two hams, right? He said, remember that big antenna you had? When you turned it around, the phasing was amazing. I couldn't hear anything. Do that to microphones. And so I did. And now, fast forward all of it, we have microphones that I don't care who it is. They could, any name you want to name, the biggest in the business, the most expensive in the business, for God's sake, I, want, I don't even want to hear about condensers. It's a scourge of the market. Uh, they're too sensitive. They all are raspy on the top end. They're not natural. Uh, just on and on and on. I just get, I just get wild about these things that people got by and use because of habit and ego. Let's do things on performance, and that's where we built this. I wasn't looking past Joe. And we built some pretty incredible things. We were the first company to ever do a large diameter dynamic. Uh, several of the big companies tried it, but they failed. We figured it out. Two hams at Joe's kitchen table. Two hams. <laughs> right. These were not million-dollar engineers like all the other guys have. Right. But we right. figured it out. And uh, 
amazing. The transient response is gorgeous. The response time, the frequency response, and 40 dB a rear. You bring me a microphone that's got 40 dB a rear. It will only be one that's got high sound on the name. Well, let, let's explain to people what that means. Basically, what you're talking about is that unless the microphone is pointed in front of you, you're not getting any signal from the back end, right? Right. We don't want all that noise from the no, back you don't side. No, you don't want to get it from everywhere else. And, you know, not to make a high sales pitch out of this, but, you know, I did my fair share of research on broadcast microphones, uh, you know, like the old EVs and the, uh, you know, the REs and uh, the Rhodes and Shures and, and all that. And I'm talking to you on a PR40 right here, Bob. And also, for my band, I use a PR22. So Built that for Paul Rogers. Uh, Paul wanted a microphone that was very articulate and you yeah. didn't have to equalize it. Mm -hmm. And you don't. Yeah, but, uh, flat. Almost well, we're flat. we're yeah. very blessed because yeah. they're, because of what Joe asked me to do. I never dreamed to get into this uh, professional market or, for gosh sakes, the broadcast market. But Joe insisted, and uh, then he started passing it around to some of his buddies and <laughs> oh, yeah. bingo. You and mean now, like the Eagles? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the Eagles. Yeah. yeah. Which, well, which is, here you, know, you are with articulate uh, we, singing right there. So yeah, yeah. we just uh, Sarah, my wife, who actually owned Tile Sound. I just invent stuff, as she uh, says, uh, and do a lot of other things before the company. But uh, she just sold 250 PR40s to Sirius Radio. They tossed out all their REs. The RE is a 60-year-old microphone with terrible yeah. communications, and that was the end of it. No yeah. rear rejection and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. so we're very blessed, and, and uh, Sirius loves them. And the bottom line of all this is a few years back, I get a call from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And yeah, curator I was going to go came, there. You beat me to it, so go on. Their, their curator came down and saw all this stuff. And he said, wow, I can't believe you got some of this stuff. I am a ham. I don't throw stuff away. Well, I sold a lot of it, but I still had a few things. And uh, we were very blessed. We're the only manufacturer in yes. the Rock and Roll Inducted Hall of Fame. Inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's right. assortment of all yeah. that. And yeah. sits right beside Les Paul's room and... Very, very honored by that, and um, we just were awarded another awarded great, a another great inventor uh, that helped rock and roll uh, oh. be birthed. Oh yeah, let me oh, tell nice. you, when Paul and I would get together, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just now sometimes kick myself that I didn't take tape recorders and just record it all. But yeah, it's yeah. been a wonderful life, and it. It's not ended. We're still dreaming up stuff and doing stuff. And Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you have a netcast about ham radio called Ham Nation on the Twit Network, Leo Laporte's Twit Network. Uh, and I think you've been doing that since 2011. And then also, I want to I want to kind of end with this, is that you are a podcaster yourself. Uh, and I really want to tell our diggers to go and download uh, the miniseries, 50 Years of Maximum Rock and Roll with Bob Heil. Uh, obviously, a play on the Who's Maximum R&B, the hum, Bob? So <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a 15-part series that really digs even deeper than we were able to today uh, in the Bob Heil story. And, uh, you know, I got a chance to listen to it, and it's some really great information in there that I didn't know that, you know, really kind of helps, uh, you know, our fans uh, understand the, the depth and breadth of music art form that we call rock and roll. And uh, like we say, you know, it's about the music, the culture and the technology that all wove together at this very unique time. And, uh, you know, you happen to be like you've said this a couple of times in our interview. 
it's like fate. Uh, you, it's almost the right place at the right time or, you know, uh, an angel on your shoulder that's tapping you right at the right moment, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I, you know, you pretty much end it with <clears throat> the thing that <clears throat> I, I, I think about it a lot. We became really good friends with, with Pete uh, uh, Townsend. And Pete always said to the guys, because I, I wasn't, when they do their partying and all their stuff, you know, they say, hey, leave him alone. The guy's <laughs> got a soldering iron. He makes it sound better and he can drive the truck, and I did. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it. And uh, they, they kind of put a wrap on that whole thing. I'm very blessed. I was just awarded an honorary PhD from Mizzou U. And when the graduation exercises were over and I gave my little speech and told them a lot of what was said here, all because of what I learned from ham radio and uh, being a pipe organist and still am, I still play. I just played a concert in Tulsa. Uh, I love playing these old theaters. But the chancellor said to me uh, at the luncheon, he said, oh, how do you feel about this? I said, it's tough for me. I, I'm very honored. I can't believe it's happening because I barely made it out of high school. Barely, because I was playing the organ, doing very well. <laughs> I, I knew what I was going to do, so I didn't study hard, and I inched out of there, and here I am with a Ph.D. My son, my stepson, he took him 15 years to get his Ph.D. in psychology. He said, but wait a minute. He stopped me. He said, Heil, it took you 50 years <laughs> to get this degree. <laughs> So I guess that's pretty much the thing when you think about it. But uh, yeah, yeah. visit our website. There's so much stuff on there, all kinds of videos and stuff. And then the 50 years of rock and roll is really good. Dave Hans did a great job there. So um, yeah. I'm always around. You can email me, and I'm always there to help you. I answer a couple hundred a day and always thrilled to, to, to meet with people and do things. Well, you heard it, Diggers. Reach out and uh, have your own conversation with uh, with Bob Heil. So, Bob, it was really great having you with us here on Deeper Digs in Rock. And, uh, you know, we just love putting the faces and the voices together on what and how important this uh, period of time was. You you lived a, a, a very interesting, amazing life, and uh, we can't wait to see what's coming next for you. So thanks for being with us today, and uh, I really enjoyed the discussion. Well, thank you very much. I'm always pleased to sit in front of the microphone and share the history of this great thing that we call rock and roll music. That's a wrap. Thank you, Bob Heil, for stopping by and sharing 50-plus years of experience and insight. Heil Sound's website is at heilsound.com. And if you were ever in the St. Louis area, Bob still plays the organ at the Fox Theater. Well worth a visit. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Thank you again, Bob Heil, and thank you for stopping by and giving us a listen. 
keep up the rocking. Bye for now. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.